Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the State Distressed Debt Edition of the Fick Focus podcast where we focus on the happenings in U.S. stressed, distressed credit and bankruptcy. I am, as ever, your host, Noel Hubert, and joining me, as ever, once again, is Senior Distressed Credit Analyst, Phil Brindle. Uh, today is March 7th, and the year is still 2022, and, uh, you know, quite a turnabout, I guess, you know, we maybe saw a little bit of volatility towards the end of last month as, um, you know, things started to take hold in terms of this dynamic in Ukraine with Russia and stuff like that. Uh, but even before that, I guess we saw a little bit of volatility in January as well. So, Phil, maybe uh, walk me through. I mean, it seems like we came to the year maybe expecting uh, some resiliency out of the asset class, that being distressed. But uh, that doesn't seem to be what we're getting. Yeah, it's it, it's it's been kind of interesting. It's a t- tale of two worlds, the technical world where I'm looking at, you know, signals that tell me, oh, so you know, distressed supply should remain low. And then uh, the fundamental world, which seems to be, you know, we're seeing like unprecedented a a lot. Again, unfortunately, that was like a favorite word around the COVID outbreak. And then now with uh, uh, the Russian-Ukraine conflict, we're we're seeing the same sort of words being thrown around in in terms of uh, at least not necessarily unprecedented, but since World War II. Um, distressed ratio is 2% again this month. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is the dis- uh, distressed th- supply really hasn't ticked up. And this was at the end of February, and that's the same level it was at the end of December. Um, you know, Omicron came and went, distressed didn't budge. Uh, and now, it, it, apparently, this conflict, we haven't seen anything. Now, so, but let's say, I mean, I guess that's sort of the interesting thing, right? So we haven't seen it yet. And I, I guess, you know, kind of watching the high yield market, I mean, one of the things that I guess we've talked about in the past is is that, you know, the selling that we've seen, whether it's spread widening or otherwise, has really been focused much more on the duration side of the business as opposed to the risk side of the business. Um, but it looks like we are starting to see maybe some cracks on that risk side. And I guess my concern is, you know, if that is a dam that does break, right, we both know that, you know, there's there's no trickles there, right? It, it's, you know, it goes straight to flood. So I guess, you know, do you see anything on your side in terms of are there warning signs that are flashing up or things still look relatively sanguine? Well, the, that is one of the interesting things, right? I might not be seeing the distress supply, um, but we know that credit spreads have widened because there is – increasing nervousness, but not to distress levels. And and so, you know, and we've also seen share, share prices swoon um, and we've seen increased volatility. So all these things sort of get you, you know, put you on alert. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting this month is that, you know, I, I look at these technical signals and I, I think it's they need to be viewed within a fundamental perspective as well. But um one of the things that I look at is uh, monthly distressed index uh, had losses in January and February. 
um, which are both historically strong months. So when you go back in time, the last 26 years, and when has that happened before? And it's actually been a terrible omen for the credit markets. It's happened four times before. And three of those instances, 1998, 2008, and 2020, preceded some of the largest distress supply spikes on record. Um, in, in 98, we went to 17.6%. Uh, in 2008, which was, you know, the, the biggest, 86.1% of the high yield index was distressed. And in 2020, we got up to 29.2%. So, you know, that should certainly put someone on pause in terms of, uh, you know, putting money into uh, high yield. Um, and then the, the remaining occurrence was 2016. And the, those two months actually marked the tail end of a credit bear market that had started in mid-2014. Um, so, uh, I yeah, I, 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 I am wary of this, especially because we're dealing with really small sample sets. Um, you know, I'm really looking historically at just sort of, you know, the characteristics of the credit cycle and, you know, what we see as far as distressed supply and how it performs. And this this certainly gives me pause. And then the other aspect is, you know, we look at how long it takes from when distressed supply, you know, peaks to when it actually bottoms. And uh, the typical, if you took a, an average, you know, the early end of when it might, you know, the time frame that it might actually bottom, um, you're looking at a potential distress supply low between April and October. And so we're kind of getting close to the end of, uh, you know, what should be kind of the good times. And then and then you're going to start looking for the surge. And, you know, if you're obviously a big asset manager that can't necessarily get out on a uh, on a dime, this is probably a time to uh, start lightening up. Yeah, and I guess maybe that's kind of an interesting question too, right? Because I think one of the things we've seen, at least in the high yield market, right? Because we do have some exposure to a handful of names that have reasonably sizable Russia exposure or maybe like historical Russian ownership like Vion, the historic Pimplecom, uh, and names like that. So, you know, and obviously huge dislocations there, uh, you know, but, you know, I guess energy, uh, maybe, maybe kind of to kind of tweet a little bit. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting to me because you know energy has obviously been a relative buoy for the for the asset class overall, right? Uh, and <laughs> clearly, with oil prices at least on the WTI basis today sitting in the sort of 115 to 120 neighborhood, probably going to continue to be and maybe even support part of that infrastructure that had been very weak, which is the services side, whether you're talking your transoceans or neighbors or whomever else. Uh, but I guess you know, do you? In energy, it's sort of been that part of the, the universe that have really driven the last two big distress cycles, if we think about 2018 and 2015. So I guess, you know, are there areas where you go, okay, well, we've got these mechanics that are happening internationally. Clearly, we've got much higher commodity prices, much higher oil prices that are supportive of certain sectors, uh, but maybe less supportive of others that maybe might catalyze some of this spread widening and maybe some of, you know, some pickup in, in sort of uh, the universe of distressed. Right. So, yeah. And, and we saw at the end of February that energy had a 3% distress ratio, which is, you know, 
in terms of how long I've been tracking it, which has been at least three years, it certainly was the lowest level that we've seen. And as you pointed out, it, energy has been c kind of the source of distress for many cycles. Um, so, you know, here you have domestic production in dollars and then you're, you're able to sell, you know, you, you've had this huge supply that basically isn't being taken up, um, you know, c coming out of Russia. And, and so it's driving pricing higher and, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it, this is, we see a post reorg equity like Chesapeake, which exited bankruptcy at 40 bucks with a really delevered capital structure now trading $85. So you, you, you're, you're seeing, uh, it's, it's their turn to shine. Um, whereas you can definitely imagine, um, you know, I, I think we we started seeing the uh, the retail market move from products and and you know capital goods to um, you know services and to the extent that uh, you know airlines and um, you know international travel might be a little bit off the table now. Um, you know, uh, we could see that you know parts of parts of the services uh, economy maybe well, I mean hesitate. Well, I mean, in airlines is obviously a sector you're familiar with, and I guess right. it's been distresses. It's got some familiarity with, but um, you know, I guess that's an interesting one too, because it's not just sort of the travel piece, right? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing jet fuel prices, at least if, and obviously it's not a perfect proxy in terms of the gas that I'm the price I'm paying to fill my that's car. That's true. But you know, I can't remember the last time I saw four percent plus uh, in New Jersey. Uh, so you know, if and obviously, you know, everything's coming from a barrel of crude. So, you know, I would assume not only looking at sort of like the revenue pressure side, but you're also looking or the utilization side, but you're also looking at sort of, you know, the input cost side, uh, you know, so I guess, you know, even as COVID abates and maybe people are more disposed to travel, it'll be interesting to see if they can recapture, you know, some of the, obviously they need the business travel to bounce back and that sort of thing. But do you have a sense of, you know, I know you spent some time on names like American and stuff like that in terms of, you know, where they are, they raised a ton of capital, obviously through the downdrafts, so maybe they, they've still got plenty of liquidity, but are, is it too soon to worry about? You know, it, if it, so American Airlines have done a lot of work on, and I, I will say they're, somewhat defensively positioned right now um but the the few the the one area that uh, most airlines ha don't have much protection on anymore it used to be southwest airlines used to have this massive fuel hedge that protected them incredibly well during the mid 2000s but now most of the airlines don't have any of their fuel hedge so all of these costs are going to have to get passed on to the passenger. And, uh, you know, the, the one thing that's pretty clear is all the airlines have also been focused on, we want to make money again. So I don't think you're going to see much. I, I think you're going to see the pricing go higher. And I don't, and, and it'll be interesting to see, because it, it, probably that will come at the expense of capacity. Um, bear with me one second. I, I, th I think your, I think your puppy maybe has yeah. something to say in the matter <laughs> as well. 
Um, That's exactly what's going clearly, on. Clearly not a big flyer, I'm guessing, is what I'm taking <laughs> away from that. But um, so I guess thinking about, you know, so beyond airlines, so maybe they're able to pass it through. And I guess we'll see sort of the, you know, supply demand piece there in terms of how elastic it is or not relative to whatever they have to do on pricing. I guess, you know, are there other sectors that sort of jump up to you that are maybe negatively exposed uh, to, to to what's going on. I mean, I think about housing, but, you know, they tend to be counter-cyclical because, you know, their cash flow gets better as, you know, the cycle turns. So even if you get a little bit of a slowdown in construction, um, but are, are there other names and spaces where you worry? I know uh, we'll get to do a couple of the more distressed names a little bit later, but um, are there sectors overall that sort of stand out to you like, okay, this could maybe, if we get into sort of a stagflationary type of environment, you know, these sectors could be problematic. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I do think industrials, uh, especially with some of the supply chains, I mean, supply chains were already kind of a mess. And, and I think, you know, a lot of plastics and a lot of, you know, oil-based uh, raw materials, um, that continues to be an issue. Um, and so, so industrials the manufacturing complex, and also to the extent that there's international manufacturing facilities and a lot of, uh, you know, you think of auto part suppliers. I know the German auto part manufacturers are going to be troubled by all of the Eastern European uh, issues. Um, and then, so, so so that's one aspect. And then just, you know, I, I kind of a uh, heads up, you know, we're later going to talk about Revlon, but you know, they noted in their fourth quarter and, you know, all of these inflationary pressures, they said raw materials are higher. They said we're having problems finding labor. And then they threw on transportation costs are going higher. So uh, all those things were hurting their ability to even have inventory to sell. So um, yeah, no, and that's that's sort of something that even gets lost here. Right. So, I mean, uh, not to get, again, sort of too far afield, but one of the things that I find really interesting is obviously we have these supply chain issues, right? And a big part of that is, is obviously the input cost, but also the labor piece as well. And here we are, however many months after, like a lot of the emergency stipends have sort of lapsed, and we are still in an environment of a very tight labor supply, um, you know, in a lot of parts of, of the country, uh, which to your point, in terms of Redline's point, right? I mean, very problematic. So, I mean, it's like <laughs> you do have a lot of com- companies that are going to be, you know, they're dealing with it from a lot of different fronts. It's probably they haven't had to sort of address in decades, right? I mean, in terms of the, the numerical fronts of, you know, that they're having to try and cope with. So but maybe we jump into Revlon a little bit because I know, well, you know, that is sort of one of the more interesting names and, and has been, uh <laughs> exciting over the last decade or so, um, you know, even just sort of like chronically in this stress, the stress phase, uh, you know, sounds like maybe they're having some, uh, some deeper issues now again. Well, it, it's, it's more just a continuation of, uh, their issues. Uh, you know, that recall that they, uh, you know, did an exchange exchange with some institutional bondholders where they, uh, once uh, immediately upon completing that exchange with, I guess, about 80% of the bondholders um, or, or maybe even higher than that, they called the rest of the issue um, the very same day at par plus accrued. So it was kind of 
uh, the institutional investors were sort of forced to play along and uh, some retail people, you know, who held out, got their uh, paid out. But that that's all just been part of a consistent like restructuring game that's been going on. That was in like December. That was in November 2020. And so, you know, here we are, uh, you know, over a year later. And, um, you know, the company has done a remarkable job of improving their profitability. Uh, their EBITDA margins have moved up uh, 300 basis points from where they were uh, pre-pandemic. Um, you know, right now it's it, it, it's EBITDA dipped a little bit from 298 to 293 on a trailing 12-month basis. But, um, you know, they're basically just about breaking even on cash flow. And um, that's not really good enough to get it done for Revlon. Uh, and I, I think one of the things is, you know, I looked through the fourth quarter and the 10K is that they really might be running into problems, uh, call it the first quarter of next year. Uh, and that's going to be because they have uh, a set of spring maturities that are tied to the 2016 term loan, which is sort of infamous uh, for Revlon because that's the one that City accidentally paid um, the, over $500 million <laughs> out for Revlon. And yeah. so, you know, think of this situation. You have uh, a potential debt restructuring, the biggest maturity out there that's you know, triggers others about maybe th another 250 million or 300 million of springing maturities. And uh, over half of the that term loan, it's who actually owns it is in dispute. Um, now, the term lenders won on the first round, but that's probably that's going to be up for appeal. And so you have a debt restructuring. You don't even necessarily know who you should be talking to. Um and the company hasn't really made that any more clearer in their 10K. They they said it, it potentially might be city, but they're continuing to service the debt. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's... So that's, what about Perlman here, right? Because, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, he's sort of been there for multiple iterations in terms of kind of rescuing them from the precipice. Um, still, obviously, the majority holder there. Uh, is there a sense of, I mean, and his daughter, I believe, is still running the company, right? So, That's right. Uh, is there a sense of sort of continued commitment here? I mean, it just seems to me when I look at the latest round of, you know, his contributions to the exercise relative to what he had done sort of in the mid-2000s and earlier, it seems like, I don't, I don't want to say it's less of a commitment, but it seems like he's it's definitely focused on being a little bit more oriented towards broader financial engineering uh, versus, you know, being directly on the hook. Is there a sense of him sort of still being engaged or maybe trying to withdraw via McAndrews and Forbes? Like, or, or does it not seem to matter anymore? I think we're left in the place where I think Ronald Perlman probably enjoys us being, and that's guessing. Um, you know, he, 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 when, when it went into the restructuring in 2020, um, you know, they made it clear that bankruptcy was a possibility and there was a lot of, um, call it 
scare the investors, you get, you get a better deal. Um, that, that strategy, um, that, that was definitely at work. Um, and then McAndrews and Forbes did arrange to purchase some people, uh, who can, who were part of the exchange and, you know, like bought some of their pieces. And so they, they helped facilitate it so that, um, at the end you had the institutional investors giving in a little bit, you had, um, the secured brand code lenders, uh, you know, uh, make amendments. And then you also had McAndrew and Forbes. So, so it was your classic deal where everyone, you know, no one's necessarily completely thrilled, but you know, everyone gave a little bit, except, um, now it wasn't a big price tag that they had to pay. They, they, they basically were just putting in a little bit to make things to kick the can down the road. And so now here we are, the company's numbers have improved. Um, liquidity is probably good, um, at least for the first part of the year. It's, uh, you know, the, the cash flow for this company, it really is the fourth quarter is one of their best quarters for cash flow. So liquidity right now is, is very good. Um, but this is like something I wouldn't expect any clear signal that I'm standing you know, supporting this company, rah, rah, you know, here we go. Um, It's going to kind of bounce against the bottom here for quite a bit. So it's, it's, it's still, it's still unclear. Um, What, what is clear is that 2000, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, What is clear is that uh, if you go into 2023 with the capital structure as it is, um, you know, the auditors aren't going to be able to sign off on this without, uh, without some going concern language, going concern assumption. So, um, you know, I expect that there's, there's going to be, uh, you know, more to come and, you know, the, the unsecured notes, which are the capital at the bottom of the capital structure, they kind of reflect that trading at 39 cents on the dollar. Um, so well, and that would be one thing too, and given the the preceding conversation, just in terms of state of play and you know all that's going on in the world today, that if that is indeed the case, you know, sort of trying to figure out how to move sooner rather than later might uh, might behoove them to the degree that even though new issuance has been hard to do for the most part across high yield, uh, pretty much certainly over the last month or so, um, you know, arguably if you're willing to pay the right concession, you can still get something done. Uh, so, so maybe the, well, I, I should say their their cost of capital is about seven percent right now, and they are paying their first lien. Not know, if they refied. Yeah, <laughs> so refi re, refining would be an incredible opportunity for the company. But uh, to give you some perspective, the the last people to give them money, the first lien Branco, um, which they lent into a troubled situation, that that papers. Uh, Twelve and a half percent plus another two uh, percent pick, so it, it's pretty juicy paper. Um, and uh, yeah. you can't do a lot at that level given the the profitability characteristics. So right. Um, so maybe shifting gears a little bit and take it into like another name that I know uh, uh, has been in focus for you, that being Diamond Sports. Um, you know what's our what's our latest there? You know, are things sort of moving? Uh, a field here or what's the 
what's the state of play? Sure. Uh, Diamond Sports, recall this is the RSN subsidiary of uh, Sinclair Broadcast Group, um, who has two silos, the television side, and then this is the RSN side where they run about, uh, I, I guess it's a 45 professional franchises are, you know, the, in the NHL, NBA, and Major League Baseball, they're all part of uh, about uh, 21 channels that uh, Diamond Sports manages. They, uh, the bonds are deeply distressed, and they just completed a successful exchange offer where over 99% of the uh, secured term loan and secured notes uh, agreed to the exchange. Um, so this is now, this was, this is sort of an easy decision for the secured lenders because they basically, um, kept their place in the capital structure and just agreed to, uh, be primed by another $635 million of, um, first lien debt. So they moved from a first lien position to a second lien position, but they're only second to the 635 million that they had the opportunity to put in. So in effect, it was a, like a capital call. Um, now what did they get for that? Uh, well, they're going to get, um, Sinclair and diamond sports will be working on a direct to consumer, uh, app, app, which will, um, you know, basically provide their channels, uh, you know, to monthly subscribers, uh, at a premium price, um, all, of the, you know, they're the sports networks in their areas. And so they're hoping that this, um, will the revenue from this will hopefully offset some of the losses that they're getting on the, on the RSN subscriber side that they've been, you know, feeling the pain from, you know, dish left these guys, YouTube left them, Hulu life sports left them. And so, it's uh it, it's 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 a uh it was a success, successful exchange but the problems aren't going away they're um what the company did was basically uh, now it has about a billion dollars of cash um which will help because it pays about 460 million dollars of interest every year and EBITDA was is set to be in, in the high 200 million range from i think when they did the acquisition one and a half billion now that number you know reflects the startup costs startup costs from uh, the direct to consumer product and cash flow will also be uh pretty bad this year because they're also still paying out 186 million dollars of rebates to their distributors so, so what's uh, what's our runway here then? It sounds like maybe I mean just back of the envelope from the numbers you just gave out maybe like three years, four years. Is that what we're talking about, or less? I mean, I guess it depends on the incremental costs that are maybe associated with this this new direct venture. Or yeah, I so so there's a the the, the direct to consumer product is there. You know, although they have a a growth and, you know, that it will be a contributor, uh, down the road. Um, you know, a lot of times these are optimistic, uh, forecasts. And so you see, we're going to lose about $500 million of that billion dollars of liquidity this year. Um, it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, 
so so there's there's a couple things here is that they the opportunity to capture any discounts in their unsecured notes which are trading at 24 cents on the dollar um might be this year because you're going to see you know the numbers clearly haven't been good um there's probably going to be some startup uh, you know issues and so one thing that i can see them doing and you know this is kind of it's there in the term sheet, you saw opportunity to do it, is they have unlimited third lien capacity to make purchases of unsecured debt. So you can imagine some exchanges where they try and get over half of that unsecured issue so that they can strip them down even further and put, you know, offer note holders the opportunity to leapfrog their other note holders. Um, and move them into third lane at a discount. So, you know, and so, you know, these are the games they might play for this year. Um, and then the, the other aspect is that, um, you know, they're not going to want to let liquidity run out completely. And so, um, you know, it's a very you, long way to say, Noel, you're wrong. Well, <laughs> I, I, three, <laughs> three, three well, three, three years, three years might be optimistic. I mean, yeah, yeah. like I, I look, if, if things don't improve or things aren't showing that they're, they're on the right path, you know, I could certainly see this. I, I could this even could be see sometime it. next year. I, I sort so, of yeah. So then you think about the unsecured coupons here. Um, you know, it's, I could see maybe them going into the grace period, you know, to, to try and put pressure on the unsecured notes in, in, in the February coupon. But I think the August coupon, I think, I think they're definitely going to pay that. Um, and I think it's just depending on the success of everything. Um, we'll see how it goes. The, the one thing that was interesting in, in the exchange, and this was probably a big issue is that, um, Sinclair agreed to a majority of the board uh, being independent directors. And importantly, the secured lenders are going to put on a board director who has restructuring experience. So you're going to have Diamond Sports start thinking more and more as if we're on our own. And it's, you know, one one of the interesting things also is that, um, you know, there was... The thought is from Sinclair and I think Diamond Sports lenders also have the same thought is that together in their negotiations with the big, you know, um, MVPDs, the, you know, the, the distributors uh, is they have leverage if they have more content. And, you know, to the extent that you're talking to Charter or Comcast and you're able to say and you're saying, hey, we're going to give you all the we, we're going to give you carriage, we're going to give you broadcast uh, stations, the local stations on the TV side, and we're also going to give you the RSNs, but you got to cut us this deal. Um, it gives each one of those silos more leverage than they might have on their own. And so I think that what you'll see is this this synergy they're trying to preserve. And um, But Sinclair, one of the things that they did... So, so one of the reliefs that they gave to Diamond Sports is the management fee. The part that's been being paid in cash uh, is is significantly lower post exchange. Uh, much of that will just be accrued, and it'll accrue as an unsecured claim 
which kind of it's interesting because it also gives, you know, when you negotiate with the unsecured creditors and give them a lien, you give them the opportunity to move ahead of that claim instead. So it's it has a uh, beneficial effect for people who, you know, the the creditors, the debtors who would want to um, have leverage over the unsecured note holders in terms of dilution. Um, so it, it's, I guess I've been rambling, uh, you know, <laughs> what, what was, I mean, I mean, listen, it's a, it's an interesting thing, right? I mean, in terms of thinking through in terms of how do they make it to that next stage of the process. So, uh, you know, I, I guess time will tell, right? I mean, I, it sounds like at least on the piece with, you know, the Comcast of the world and stuff like that. I mean, what kind of discretion do they have to sort of restrike some of those agreements? How do those contracts come up for renewal? Is that something yeah. that's, uh, that we can credibly expect? Yeah. So, so right now they're in the midst of negotiations with Charter, um, who they are, they account for 28 and a half percent of the RSN's revenue. So uh, that that had a February expiration, and so they're extending. Um, I would expect that some kind of deal gets announced there. Um, there is always the fear that they would walk uh, a la dish, um, you know. But part of the leverage that the RSNs have is that you know, with subscribers, is I there's 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 a fair number of subscribers who uh, subscribe to Comcast or Charter. Because I do get my local sports channels and, you know, you lose that, you're probably also going to ha- lose subscribers. So there, there's uh, mutual benefits to each of these folks in playing ball. Um, and, you Speaking know, playing ball, how are your uh, how are your nets looking post Harden? That I don't I don't want to talk about the nets. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on and on, but I have nothing good to say. Um, <laughs> and then, but in terms of playing ball, the major league lockout, um, with baseball, uh, that's, that's another concerning development. And, you know, one of the things, look, it, it's, it's clearly not good because these, you know, Sinclair and diamond sports, they want to run their business as designed. Um, and that's having content. But one of the things the CFO did note in the quarterly conference call was that when the um, when they went below a certain threshold in terms of content provided in games, um, that it ended up being a net benefit for Diamond. Because what happens is you don't have to pay the leagues uh, if they can't deliver enough games. And then your distributors, you have to give them rebates. And so Diamond noted that, I guess, when it was triggered during COVID, it was actually a net benefit for, uh, because the ad spend, the ad revenue that um, uh, Diamond Sports is generating uh, is not nearly as significant as the distribution revenue. So it really is, they're a classic middleman, um, which, you know, part of the whole problem here is they have an average lifetime on the contracts in which they pay royalties to the teams at a, of about nine years. But if you look at the distribution contracts, those are all two to three years. I mean, they're, they're really short dated. So they have a mismatch there. It's one of the fundamental difficulties with this business. 
All right. Well, I mean, that's, that's going to be another one interesting to watch. I guess, you know, there's a couple of names until we maybe get a little bit more supply from the distress side. Um, with that, I mean, any sort of last thoughts here, Phil, in terms of something that you might be looking for in the month ahead? I mean, clearly everybody's got their eyes on Russia and Ukraine and, and sort of what the evolution is there. I'm, I guess, from my side on the high yield side, looking and sort of very closely monitoring what's happening in the new issuance market as that looks like it's not completely frozen, but it's it's pretty frigid right now. Uh, and that could have certainly some implications if that persists. Is there something you're watching on your side that if it happens or comes to pass, you, you grow more concerned or, or any last thoughts, I guess, for our listeners here? I, I do think that we're going to get a at least a set of distressed names simply from the, the crisis here. I mean, one we, we don't cover it, but there's a Ukrainian vertically integrated uh, company called Interpipe Holdings, which is a you know steel pipe manufacturer vertically integrated in Ukraine and sells to you know exports their product. I mean, clearly this is devastating to to, to credits like that. Um, and, you know, the, the, the one thing that I, I guess, you know, be careful to overestimate investors um, in the sense that very few investors saw a pandemic coming. And you can guess that very few investors, despite, you know, much of a lead up, a significant lead up to, to these uh, aggressions, I imagine a lot of investors didn't think that we'd actually see Russian tanks, you know, going as far as they've gone in, in the Ukraine. So, um, I, 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 yeah, I, fully... and I think we're also seeing, you know, uh, what, what looked like maybe in the first days of, of the invasion looked like maybe it'd be over relatively quickly. You know, perhaps it looks like maybe we're settling in for something that's not permanent, but a little bit longer lasting. And I think not unlike the, the, the COVID dynamic, right. The longer you live in this environment, uh, the more potentially problematic it becomes, so it'll be interesting to see uh, where this goes. I'm curious, Noel. Do, do, do you? I mean, my uh, my view is that like we're not going to as soon as you get taken off the list of countries that you can invest in, it's extremely hard to get back on it. I mean, do do you have some thoughts on how long? You know, even if there was if there's some kind of patchwork solution here, do you think governments and countries might say, okay? will continue to do business and then, but the investors and the actual companies are significantly more reluctant to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, with sanctions, it's always kind of a tricky thing, right? Because I think uh, the governments obviously would have to sort of change the mind in terms of where they're at, number one. Uh, and we just saw, you know, kind of like we saw with Venezuela, we just saw a whole host of, Russian assets basically de-indexed, certainly from the fixed income side. So uh, Bloomberg just uh, announced with the rebalancing that will be coming at the end of this month, uh, anything that's Russia domiciled will be removed. Uh, and so, you know, I think in terms of access to Western capital markets, it really just depends on sort of the sanctions regime. But the flip side of that is, you know, one, does Russia truly need access to to Western markets? Um, and, you know, there isn't a ton of dependency on U.S., so you may be looking more Europe-oriented. And would Europe, and particularly Germany, be as sort of uh, restrictive as the U.S.? I think that's to be determined um, just because of all the other interdependencies there. Uh, and then 
alternatively, I mean, I think what we've seen is we've seen China sort of step into the fray. So it may be that you get a, a different and evolutionary regime now. We don't have sort of the same complexity in the capital markets in China that we do sort of in the Western world um, that may or may not be sort of near term relevant. Um, but I think it's it will definitely impair the broad access to capital to not have uh, access to sort of dollar flows and dollar funds, you know, whether they come in dollar terms or ruble terms. So I think that'll be, you know, problematic uh, to a degree, but I don't think it's entirely debilitating. On the flip side of that, assuming sanctions, you know, and it depends, again, sort of, I guess, on the, the permanence of the Ukrainian situation, because it'll be difficult if there's a permanent occupation in the West is sort of funding a resistance for them to say, okay, well, we had sanctions in the first month, but now we're going to take them out <laughs> going forward. Um, so assuming the, the sanctions end up being a little bit more permanent, uh, you know, I think that raises different issues and different questions uh, for, for the companies that are domiciled there in terms of where they're going to go for capital. But uh, as of right now, I mean, the upshot is is the, the companies that are largely targeting capital or tech capital raises are commodities oriented. And I think as we've seen with whether you're talking Venezuela, Iran or whomever else, right, regardless what sanctions regimes you sit under, there's there's always some way to sort of get your product to market, um, even if, you know, everybody sort of winks and smiles and says it's not happening. Right. So it's they'll find a way to move product if that's what they end up having to do. So anyway. Yeah, no, there's a lot of significant leakage and, uh, you know, it's it's uh it's it's going to be interesting and it and i imagine a lot of what investors do will depend on sort of the geopolitical balance that we get from any kind of uh you know halt to hostilities so i mean absolutely so i mean but this is a conversation that we can certainly take <laughs> over cocktails and for a very long time um i'm not sure that uh, listeners absence their cocktails would uh Quite entertain us for that. So, so why don't we maybe wrap it here for the month of March? Uh, and as we always do, thank our listeners for dialing in and uh, humoring us as we humor them uh, with our, our tales of uh, non-distressed or distressed, as the case may be. Uh, and we look forward to uh, speaking with y'all in in a month. Sounds good. Cheers. Thanks a lot. <laughs>